Cocaine is produced from the leaves of coca, a plant that grows almost exclusively on the slopes of South America. Even when the Mexican drug cartels are powerful and dangerous, the business begins further south. Colombia is the main producer of cocaine in the world, and criminal organizations send the merchandise abroad. Right now, you can call Colombia the strategic center for drugs. You can call it the best jumping off point. Anything can be sent from here to go anywhere. And the most powerful cartel in Colombia is the Gulf Clan. Welcome to the America's Now podcast. We're going to talk about uh, all of this with our Colombia-based correspondent, Toby Muse, about a criminal organization that has been growing nonstop until becoming the most powerful cartel in South America. Toby, thank you so much for joining us on the America's Now podcast. Elaine, it's great to be here. Thank you for the invite. I'm looking forward to it. Well, you reported about the Gulf Clan for America's Now. And in order to do that, you had to talk to drug smugglers, coca growers, and you also had the chance to see how this criminal organization works. A lot to unpack here. How did this all begin and how did you get access? Um, I, I, this was a story I wanted to tell because, as you mentioned, um, there's just a historic amount of cocaine being produced right now in the world. And I think it's an undercovered story. It's one of those stories that I think people kind of nod their head, but they don't really understand what this is going to mean. This is a global problem. We're seeing more cocaine than ever before. They think there could be over 2,000 tons of cocaine being produced every year. And that cocaine is going across the planet to newer markets as the cartels make alliances with local gangs and mafias across the planet. And I wanted to tell this story and kind of get to the beginning of this to show where this whole global, I would say, crisis begins. And it does begin, as you say, in the mountains and jungles of South America. In this case, it was Colombia. And so I went through my contacts to go about who could open a door so I could sit down with these men uh, of the Gulf clan. And it ended up traveling to the banana region of Colombia, a zone called Apataro. And that is where one of the historic bases of the Gulf clan and there was a lot of negotiations about what we could, um, how, what we could film. They obviously said that certain things couldn't be filmed and they had to be um, covered up when we filmed them, but they eventually agreed. And that was the trip out there to film these guys, uh, to see their day-to-day -day life in the world of drug trafficking. How long did it take to gain their trust? Because obviously there had to be a certain level of trust on both sides here. And was there any fear at all going through this process while you're in it? Um, talk to us about that. I mean, it took weeks and um, of people, intermediaries as well, getting involved and kind of, you know, get, getting in contact with these people, vouching for me, uh, vouching for the camera person as well. Uh, you have to kind of convince these men to do it. it. Sometimes they see a benefit in doing it. Sometimes they don't. And it kind of depends upon the level of politics that they have. It's a strange way of framing it that way. But if it's just 100% criminal, they rarely see any interest in speaking to the press. But when they sort of 
have this veneer of politics like the Gulf clan does, sometimes they are interested in speaking to the press to get their po political point of view out. So there is that difference. It took weeks um, when we were there. It's a very weird time when we were there because they were still involved in um, the Gulf clan was attacking police. This was uh, a run up to the new president taking office. And what these criminal organizations and these political criminal organizations in Colombia do is before a new president takes office, they often launch a wave of attacks. And that's a way of alerting the new president, hey, we're important. You're going to need to deal with us. So when we were in Apatador, there were just a bunch of attacks in one day. We filmed two different attacks as we were driving around the region with this Gulf clan attacking police stations, not the guys we had been with. But it's a sign of how large that organization is. So dealing with these men um, in person, the, the fear level isn't high because you have kind of spent weeks negotiating your access and there's no real there's no real there's no real interest benefit for them to really turn on you. But these are unstable men. You know, they live at the heart of this violent underworld. And they can react in bad ways. So you've always got to be on your toes. But um, traveling with them, I think one of the major fears often is when you are with them is you just don't want the bad luck of a police operation to occur at the same time because then they will turn and they will accuse you of having been an informant. So that's the main concern often. You just don't want there to be any misunderstanding. That would be the worst thing, that the police turned up that same day by pure coincidence. They're going to turn around and say, you ratted us out and mm -hmm. then could start a whole world of trouble. Right. That is terrifying. Um, I want to pivot a bit to a character in your story, uh, this older man. And so there's this side of it, too, where you talk about how much money he makes in a day compared to what he used to make. Uh, let's take a listen to what he had to say quickly. The rich are set. The poor have to go out and find something every day. Here we're living day by day, and we are looking for opportunities. Toby, can you pick up on that and, and just explain to us where this particular man is in his life um, and how, I guess, his position has changed in time? Well, what you find with a lot of these men is that they come out of some of the poorest communities in Colombia, often these very marginalized ghettos. And there's a kind of informal, certainly thought, if not a saying in Colombia, that if you're born poor in certain parts of the country, you're almost guaranteed to die poor. Social mobility is very, very limited in that country. It's very stratified. And for many young men who want to be someone, who want to kind of be something a bit bigger than maybe their impoverished parents they saw. Some think that the only thing that they can do is to turn to a life of crime. And there has become a whole culture that I think really is encapsulated in the, that man's words. There's the culture of easy money, Colombians say. And this is a relic, a cancer of the narcotics industry. The culture of easy money is, when you're 15, why are you going to go to school? You can drop out and start working for the gang and earn more than your father does. The culture of easy money is, why are you going to learn a profession? Just start trafficking in drugs and you'll be a millionaire in a couple of years. That's the culture of easy money that affects men and women. For the men, it can be that they join these criminal organizations. The culture of easy, 
easy money for these women is that they'll become the lovers and the wives of the drug lords and they get criticized. So you'll see in these poor neighborhoods, they'll say the problem with the kids is the culture of easy money. Plata facile is what they call it. And they say that they're trying to, you know, you'll see that these cultures in certain neighborhoods, they're trying to fight against that culture. They're trying to tell kids, no, if you do stay at school, you can have a hope of getting a good job. You can move out of this slum. But it's an uphill battle. And that man, I think, really encapsulates that culture of easy money. And it's true. By being a criminal, he's going to earn more than virtually the vast majority of people in the legal world. But that has a time limit on it. And they all know that. By the time these guys make 30, it's almost a miracle. The idea of reaching 50, I mean, just forget about it. What they say is, I'll take the money and I'll take a shortened life, but I'll live that more, much more intensely. The thing is, they all start to regret it. The closer they get to 30, the closer they get to 50, and they see the end is in sight. Then they wish that they had got out earlier, that the door is shut. Well, because the trade-off, I guess, is is the violence and the possibility that you can be killed at any moment, right? I mean, hundreds of Klan members have been killed, nearly 3,000 captured. And in November of 2021, the Klan's leader, Dario Antonio Usuga, better known as Antoniel, was arrested. But the Klan is still strong and functioning. How so, Toby? Well, I think this is an important moment as well to really, to really analyze the drug policy that has been carried out by Colombia with the backing of the United States for at least the past 25 years, let's call it, because they have focused on this, what they would call the capo strategy. And that has basically been the strategy we've been employing since the 80s, going after people like Pablo Escobar with the hope that that will change the, um, the drugs industry. Well, this time we've seen it. Cocaine hasn't slowed down for one second since the capture of Otoniel. He was, the, he was the head of the largest cocaine cartel in South America. It didn't interrupt the cocaine trade for one day. And I think there needs to be questions about how much longer are we going to keep going along with this policy that doesn't seem to be bringing us the benefits it was promised to us. The reason um, the cartel has managed to keep on is that it's a highly organized organization that once the leader is taken off, there were at least two candidates ready to step in. We did wonder whether there would be much infighting. That doesn't seem to have been the infighting that we've seen with this change of power that we have seen in other criminal organizations. I'll give you the, um, the example of the the Northern Valley Cartel, which was this incredibly powerful um, drug cartel that really rose up to take the place of the Cali Cartel. If anyone's seen that series, Narcos, the third season. Cocaine cartels are about succession. The day Pablo went down, the Cali Cartel became public enemy number one. That's all about the Northern Valley Cartel. And, but this incredible cartel becomes the most powerful cartel in Colombia. They have it all, and then they start warring amongst each other. There's three leaders, and they all go to war against it. It's just disaster. This time, we haven't seen that. And the Klan has, importantly, managed to hold on to its territory. That was another uh, question we all had watching this. Uh, so the Klan is incredibly strong, and they keep doing these things where they show their strength to the rest of the country. They call it the armed strike. And what they do is they basically declare for large parts of the country that no one is to leave their home, no business is to be opened. And if we see anyone on the street, 
It's open season. We'll, we'll kill. And so you see these incredible towns across the Caribbean coast and the northwest, mainly of the country. You see these towns deserted. And these armed strikes can last three days or so. And in the same time, um, the, the Gulf clan will say to its members, for every police officer you kill, we'll pay you $500, $1,000. So they put a bounty, but it's a way of showing the country, this is how strong we are. Now, we should say that things have changed a little bit with the new government. The Gulf clan is interested in negotiations with the new president, Gustavo Petro, and that has definitely calmed things down uh, from what it used to be even a year ago. Toby, you, you talked a little bit about the leadership, but take us out to the cocoa fields. Is it really impossible for authorities to eradicate all the product there? Yes. I mean, once you phrase it that directly, is it impossible for them to eradicate all of the coca? Yes. And that has been shown. So, I mean, it's a very vast conversation because there are different tools about how they've used to eradicate the coca in the past. And if you find the kind of, let's just call them the drug warriors, those who really support the current uh, or the, the policy as it's been enacted over the, the past 25 years. One thing that they were very upset about is the end of aerial fumigation. Now, this basically was where they stored up these uh, these airplanes that would fly low over the um, over the fields of coca and they would spray, uh, they would fumigate, killing the crops. And they could cover hundreds of hectares a day doing that. Obviously, you just spray it over and then you go. But there's been increasing concerns about how safe this was, this herbicide, uh, this uh, fumigating, these herbicides being used. And many were questioning the health benefits and in fact, uh, the, the health concerns. And at one point, the World Health Organization said it could cause cancer. So then the Colombian government ceased doing aerial fumigations. And so that's been one side where the drug warriors have said, oh, if we, if we could get aerial fumigations back, we would win this war. But then we know they couldn't win when they were fumigated. There were still tens and tens of thousands of hectares. So now we've moved on to this new thing. And we know that the best way of trying to get a farmer to give up the coca, a real sustained way to make that farmer give up the coca and stay off the coca is for the government to work with him or her. And that's a process where the government is there to kind of hold his or her hand and get them from the illegal crop into a legal crop. So to help them grow chickens, grow coffee, tend cows, anything. But these people, they do need more infrastructure. When I've gone out to the coca zones, I'll give you an example. Uh, I was, um, well, a book I wrote called Kilo, Inside the Cocaine Cartels. I ended up going to a region of Colombia called Catatumbo, which means land of lightning. This is where a lot of coca fields were. It took me six hours to get there from the the largest nearby village. And that village only had like 15,000 people, but that was the big town, the big city for this region. Six hours. When I checked on Google Maps how long it was as the crow flies, 30 kilometers. But six hours traveling along highways, crossing rivers, uh, going down dirt tracks on bikes. Now think about that trek and you've grown one ton of pineapples. How are you going to get one ton of pineapples to town to sell at the market on the back of a motorbike? 
How are you going to pay for it to travel on a, on a boat? It's impossible. So Colombia needs this infrastructure to help these farmers who are in the kind of badlands to really build the infrastructure so they can turn to legal crops and then they can get off the coca. Well, we want to take a listen quickly to Hector, one of the uh, farmers that you spoke to. The planting has increased a lot in recent years and will continue to do so. Why? Because legal crops are worthless and the government has never helped the small farmers with selling the legal crops. There's never been that guarantee. What do you think he is trying to impart uh, to all of us? I mean, here we have one of many farmers who is having to make a choice, really, and they're, and they're seemingly caught in the middle of, of all of this. I think he's expressing a common concern that you hear from these Colombian coca farmers is that they really honestly do feel that they don't have any choice, that the vagaries of the market is one thing that can really hurt these guys. So, for instance, the coffee price goes up and down. Coffee can be, bring in uh, enough money to uh, support the family, but then the next year, the price can crash, and then they're looking at children who could be going hungry. And again, it's that question of being out in the badlands where there is no infrastructure. And infrastructure, I mean bridges, I mean roads. And again, let's go back to that example of pineapples. You have one ton of pineapples you want to sell. That's the harvest. You could try and transport that to the local village, or you could grow your coca, change that coca leaves into one kilo of coca paste, put that in your backpack, jump on the back of a motorbike, and then you can sell that um, in the local coca market and then make your money. And so these people feel it's kind of inevitable. But one change I will say that I've noticed in the recent years, which I do think is of interest, we've seen a whole generation of Colombian farmers really go through the life of being a coca farmer. And many of them have realized it's not worth it. I think an ambitious government who comes with a bold vision to work with farmers will find the vast majority of farmers ready to join a plan immediately because the world of cocaine is a dark, violent place. These are farmers. These are not tough guys. They, they've never claimed to be tough guys. They don't work for the cartel. They work for themselves, but they're drawn into this orbit of cocaine. And once you're in that orbit, all bets are off. You can't go to the police if anyone steals from you or beats up your son or robs from you. No, you're an outlaw now. You didn't want to be, but that's what happens. Now the narco militias who control the trade, they're in charge of the area where you live. And they're also, I think, what's often been unreported is that there's a social decay cocaine brings to these small villages because what happens is the farmers make so much money and they all talk about like the golden era which is like a year or two when just everything's great but then the violence comes how are scores settled well with violence and then there's the other thing of uh the invasion of prostitutes this happens to these tiny colombian vi uh, villages where it becomes a gold rush mentality so you'll have a town of perhaps 5,000 people and there will be 10 brothels there. So that is all kind of chipping away at the social links. So then you'll have a farmer will run off with a prostitute. You'll see an explosion of sexually transmitted diseases. 
And the farmers are really now looking at this and saying, you know, maybe this isn't all worth it. Before coca, we were poor, but we had these strong societal bonds. I could trust my neighbor. There wasn't the violence. And now we've got money, but at what cost? Well, that brings me to the future, Toby. I mean, you're an author. You mentioned your book, Kilo, um, and that's all about your investigation of the drug cartels in Colombia. Great book, by the way. Thank you. <laughs> I got to get you to sign my copy. I uh, count on it. <laughs> but earlier you mentioned how there is more cocaine being produced than ever before. Yet, and maybe this is just me, I don't hear about it as much in the news. You hear about all these other drugs now, fentanyl and and what uh, what's on the streets. What's you know, I feel like you used to hear about cocaine on the streets much more. So where do the where does the future? Why don't we hear about it as much, even though this production is still happening? Um, how is this business changing? Is it how is it evolving? And what do you see in the future here? I think you're right. I think it has been underreported, but I do think that's changing. I get the I I get the sensation that people finally are really truly understanding this is a global crisis. That there is cocaine around the world, even if you just look at say. Um, individual countries seizures in recent years seizures of cocaine in recent years all of these countries have been reporting record seizures take the united states i think it was 2019 they seized nearly 20 tons of cocaine in one operation on one boat i mean 20 tons of cocaine if you look at germany again announcing a record amount of seizures costa rica england is reporting more drugs than ever before and so I think it has gone kind of low profile, for, but I do think it's coming to the forefront that what we've been doing, all of these countless billions of dollars that have spent in this anti-drug strategy in Colombia are obviously not working. And one of the biggest supporters of a change in the approach is the new president of Colombia himself, Gustavo Petro. So when he gives his inaugural speech uh, last year, he said that one of his main points was the war on drugs has failed and we're going to find a new path and i don't know what that looks like but what i do know is colombia cannot do it by itself this is a global problem and colombia should not be left alone it's unfair because this business is about supply and demand the poorest farmers in colombia produce cocaine because some of the people in the richest countries on the planet buy and consume cocaine I think the world has the right to turn to Colombia and say, why are you producing more cocaine than ever before? But Colombia has the right to turn to the world and say, what are you doing to reduce demand for the drug? And that's why, again, I want an international global approach to this problem. Too often, people have just kind of put it all on Colombia and said, you solve it. It's impossible. Colombia cannot do it. And it's going to require all of the countries coming together and working together. I mean, certainly one option uh, people are looking at is the possible decriminalization. Others are talking about possible legalization. There's many who are very opposed to that, though. We're really venturing into an unknown world because many people are worried about the idea of openly available drugs. I mean, and that's understandable. But on the other hand, what are we going to do? So I, I think this is the time for new innovative discussions of people of good faith to come together and say, all right, what do we do about this? And, and put everything on the table 
uh, because at the moment, yeah, what we're doing is just it's just perpetuating a war we know we've lost. And that's about the worst thing you can do as far as I can see. In the future, I could be out here, I could be a prison, or I can be six feet under, dead. The only one who runs things here is the golf clan. Fascinating topic. Toby Muse, always great to have you on. Thank you so much for joining us today on the America's Now podcast. Thank you, Elaine. I enjoyed it. The executive producer of the America's Now podcast is Jose Velasquez. Our audio editor is A.J. Moore. Joe Zarenko is our copy editor. Umberto Duran is the head of the features unit. And I am your host, Elaine Reyes. Until next time.